Hey, Brent, did you hear we're number one? Number one? What are we number one in these days, Carrie? Stay tuned to find out. You're listening to the official podcast of Flagstaff County. With one million acres of fertile farmland, it's no secret that the Flagstaff region is steeped in a rich farming tradition. But did you know that Flagstaff is now home to the most Alberta Century Farm and Ranch Award recipients? My name is Kerry Castagna, and I'm the Communications Coordinator for Flagstaff County. I'm joined by my boss, Brent Hoyland, Assistant CAO for Flagstaff County. Now, Brent, according to the latest statistics, Alberta Agriculture has recognized 87 families in Flagstaff County for the impressive distinction of continually owning and actively operating the same land for a minimum of 100 years. 87. That is impressive. When you consider that we have approximately 650 farms in Flagstaff County, so we're close to 15%. 15% of our farms out here. Really speaks to the resilience of the area. Yes. Yeah, they're resilient and persistent. Good for them. No other municipality in the entire province can claim to have more century farms. The oldest century farm in this area was established in 1902, and that was the Seiferman family. Hmm, that's impressive. I know we usually run neck and neck with, with other municipalities. Uh, who have we pulled ahead of these days? Well, I've got the rundown here. Lamont County is second with 81 Century Farm and Ranch Award recipients. Camrose County comes in third with 78, followed by Red Deer County with 77. And then rounding out the top five, we have a tie, the County of Vermilion River and Vulcan County, both with 68. Do any of these surprise you? No, not really. I mean, they're all great agriculture-producing municipalities. But the one that I look at twice would be Red Deer. Because you assume that they're on the Highway 2 corridor, you know that they've seen significant urban development. And when you see that, you would assume that, you know, they're, they're taking on good farmland. And there could be an encroachment. There could be, you know, pushing, you know, farmers off the land. But it's nice to see that they're, they're holding their numbers as well. So all in all, really impressive. Really impressive. Yeah, and of course, this is a distinction that you have to apply for. The Alberta government has set forth... The following criteria. Number one, at the time of application, your land has been continuously owned and actively farmed for a minimum of 100 years. Number two, you can provide evidence clearly demonstrating the kinship ties between you and the founder of the farm, ranch, or homestead. Number three, you can provide the date of homestead of farmland establishment. Number four, you can provide the current ownership land title. And finally, number five, the current size of the original homestead of land base should be at least 160 acres of land. Of course, once you hit the 100-year milestone, then you can start working towards the 125-year milestone. And I guess at least one Flagstaff farm will be eligible in a few years in 2027. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. And it's nice to see that the provincial government is still um, offering this award and recognizing the hard work and achievements of our agricultural producers. For more information about both of these Alberta government award programs, 
please visit our website at flagstaff.ab.ca. I wasn't around 100 years ago, despite my gray hairs, but I can only imagine that what is now known as the Flagstaff region looked quite a bit different. Brent, you weren't around either, but I'd say you're the uh, resident historian in the office. So can you take us back and tell us how it all started? Sure. There used to be a point in time when people would ask me how things are. Now they ask me how things were. (laughs) You know, we can go back to 1869, and that's when the Dominion of Canada negotiated with the Hudson's Bay Company for the transfer of the Northwest. And at that time, it was done for $1.5 million. And nowadays, that might get you a half section here in Flagstaff County. So back, yeah, isn't that something? So back in 1871, the government sent surveying teams out west, and they started to divide the land into townships and sections and getting ready for farming. And once the Dominion Land Act was passed in 1872, any male over the age of 18 was offered a homestead. And it was also offered to any female as well, as long as she was the head of the household. So by the 1890s, the western regions were still vastly unpopulated, and we had about maybe 2% of the total population. So by 1895, they initiated a campaign for western settlement. And it was an aggressive campaign to attract farmers to Alberta, and they had pamphlets and posters that were printed in Britain, Europe, and the USA. And they also had handbooks that were printed about Alberta, filled with a climatic crop, and, I guess, resource information. And at that time, they profiled farmers, and one was a farmer from Daysland who had harvested a turnip that weighed over 30 pounds. So if that wouldn't attract somebody from Europe, what would? 30-pound turnip, a 30 very enticing. Turnip. So as a result, between, it was 1896 and 1914, there was more than a million people from all over Europe, Asia, and North America came to settle here in Western Canada. And it was between 1901 and 1905, there was about 40,000 homesteads granted in Western Canada. So that sounds like a very successful campaign. Um, Brent, can you talk a little bit about what went into homesteading and and what the homesteaders had to do? Sure. Um, The majority of settlement occurred here in Flagstaff County. It was between 1902 and 1920. In that time... If you were a homesteader, you had to pay a $10 application fee. And there was one of two ways of doing it. If you were one of the earlier homesteaders, there wasn't a lot of land that was taken yet. So you probably had the time to come out and take a look at where you wanted to settle. And then you would head back. At that time, the land office was in Wetaskiwin because that's as far as the railway came. So you would go back and put the claim in on the quarter that you wanted grab your supplies, go out and start homesteading. The other way of doing it is when you showed up to the land office, you would just go to see what was available, put your claim in, put your application fee in, and then come out and find that parcel. So what you had to do was, aside from your $10 application fee, you had three years to basically prove your homestead. You had to make improvements. You had to have uh, buildings, whether it be a barn or a house, And it was interesting because there's stories about some of the early homesteaders. What they did was you had two bachelors that were neighbors, and they basically built a sawed shack on the fence line. 
and one bachelor lived on the side of the shack that was on his property, and the other bachelor lived on the side of the shack that was his property. So they had to stay there on their property for at least six months out of the year. That was one of the stipulations. And he also had to have 40 acres of land broke by the end of three years. And, you know, when they broke land, I mean, they just had, you know, a single bottom plow, and those were called foot burners in the day because... If you were to break an acre of land, it was said that you walked about eight miles. So hence the term foot burners. And six months being on your land actually worked well for a lot of the homesteaders because they were able then to work off the farm for six months. A lot worked in coal mines, some went out to BC, worked in lumber camps. So they were able to help subsidize the income required to help buy supplies, to you know, allow them to survive. So after three years, if you made the improvements, you would then apply for your patent, and an inspector would come out and have a look and ensure that you did what you said you did. You had improvements made, you had acres broke, and you had livestock on your farm. And you were then granted your homestead, so you, were, you then had title free and clear to your 160 acres. So that was what was involved, and that was no easy feat. So can you talk a little bit about how the sections were divided? Yeah, there's 36 sections in a township. And of course, when the surveyors came out in 1871, that was all done at that time. So in each township, sections 11 and it was 29 were reserved for school land. So at least we knew that there was going to be schools set aside to go on those properties. And the Hudson's Bay Company, even though we paid $1.5 million for the Northwest, in that deal, they were still granted uh, all of Section 8 and three-quarters of Section 26. And when the homesteaders came out, they were provided the even-number sections. So any even-number section was for a homesteader, and the odd numbers were saved for the CPR. And the CPR was then able to sell those quarters to homesteaders if they wanted it. But it wasn't for the $10 application fee at that time. It was probably for fair market value mm -hmm. of that property. And, of course, CPR was also granted 25 million acres of land in the West for financing the railroad. And in turn, what they did was they sold that land to help fund the cost of pushing the railway through. Yeah, the CPR had a huge role. Yeah, they were really important, you know, to the expansion and... and in the Western settlement, and it's quite evident when you consider how quickly a community flourished once the railway came. In 1903, the railway came as far as Wetaskiwin, so that was the basically getting off point for a lot of the homesteaders. And I believe that the railway came through to Daysland by 1906, and, and with it, I mean, the communities did flourish because with it, it brought the homesteaders, it brought the supplies, and it was there to help ship out the commodities that were grown by the farmers. So what about the Flagstaff region? Can you touch a little bit on, on the history of Flagstaff? Yeah, we have, a, we have a real rich history out here. And you can go back as far as 1754, and it was Anthony Andy. I'm sure you've heard of him in your, your history classes. He was the first white person to pass through this area. And he basically crossed along the Battle River on his way to Red Deer. And he did make note of one of the uh, landforms. And, of course, at that time, it's what we, we know as Treaty Hill. 
1958, there was John Palliser, and he also camped near Treaty Hill, and we all know that John Palliser led the British North American Exploring Expedition, and he was in charge of determining what the geography was, what the ecology was, what the climate was of, of Western Canada. And he actually stated that this area was somewhat in, uninhabitable. He didn't feel like there was there would be a great potential for agricultural production, but it was nice that we were able to prove him wrong. As I mentioned, he camped near the place which we know as Treaty Hill or Flagstaff Hill, but at that time, the Cree had named it Flag Hanging Hill, and that's how we got our name, because what do you hang flags on? Flagstaff, so it was anglicized to Flagstaff, so that is our namesake. And of course, you know, Flagstaff Hill, it was here where Bishop Grandin met with the Black Foot and Cree and helped forge peace between them. So we, we have a real rich history in, in that sense. And, you know, we talked about when the first homesteaders came. I know that, you know, we had settlement here probably in the very late 1800s, but the majority came between 1902 and 1920. And as more homesteaders arrived, there was a need for municipal governance and infrastructure. So talk a little bit about the earliest form of government. The earliest form that we had out in our way, in fact, it started with most municipalities, was they had what they called herd districts and fire districts because the government was put in place or these governing bodies were put in place to deal with the issue of the day. So... There was not a lot of fences. Uh, we had homesteaders growing crops, and we had wayward herds. So what we had to do was try to deal with that, and herd districts were formed to ensure that everybody kept their herds contained or confined or within or within their own property. And then the other threat to the homesteaders back then was fire. So fire districts were formed. And we had to make sure that adequate fire guards were put in place if conditions allowed for a fire and had to try to ensure that there was some type of response or protection for the homesteaders. So those were the very earliest forms of municipal government. When was the last uh, big fire to roll through this I, area? I think it was 1909 is the record that we have, the, la the last largest fire to rip through this area. Uh, what about a, another issue that's near and dear to Flagstaff County residents? I bet that would be roads. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about roads and infrastructure? Definitely. Well, as more people arrived, you know, roads were required. And when you're moving commodities out, when you're moving supplies in, when you're going to town, when you're going to school, uh, you needed roads. So they actually, at that time, municipal governments uh, often... Uh, required or hired local farmers with their teams in Fresnos to help build the roads, or they they offered their services to build roads in lieu of taxes. So when you see that there's a lot of landowners passionate about their roads, it's it's in their DNA. I mean, they they probably had their their ancestors and their forefathers at one time building roads here in Flagstaff County. So Flagstaff County obviously wasn't always known as Flagstaff County. Can you take us through the evolution of the name and, and the governance right from 1912, I believe? Yeah, it was in 1912. At that time, we were known as the RM or the Rural Municipality of Flagstaff. 
And at that time, the current Flagstaff region used to be made up of five rural municipalities within this area. Uh, we had Flagstaff, which of course was the southeast portion of the municipality. We had Asquith, which would be the southwest. Wheatland, which is around the Killam Central area, Kinsella to the northeast, and Sterling would have been to the northwest. So it was Flagstaff, Asquith, Wheatland, Kinsella, and Sterling. So in 1918, there was 167 rural municipalities in the province. And in the mid-1920s to the 30s, you know, we, we know that farm income disappeared and a lot of people left the land. And it was, it was tough times. How many people would you say uh, roughly uh, left the area? Well, it's interesting because we can go back and look at uh, the census for the Flagstaff region all the way back to 1916. And in 1916, Flagstaff County, so just the rural area, there was uh, 2,125 residents. And by 1926, so within a period of 10 years, and this will speak to the testament about all the people that came, so within 10 years, from 1916 to 1926, we went from 2,125 residents to 10,700. Wow. And that's just yeah. the rural area. So at that time, there was 10,126. This is interesting. There was 10,700 rural residents, and there would have been only... Uh, three be just about 3,000 urban residents. So, you know, when you compare to the amount of people living in the rural areas as compared to the urban areas, it's three to one. That's impressive. But by 1936, our population went down to 7,500. So we almost lost 2,500 people in just a matter of 10, 10 years. years. Yeah. And then since that time... You know, we've lost almost two-thirds of our rural population. So from 1926 all the way to 2016, that's when the last census was done here. And we were 3,244 rural residents. So we're, we're getting close to, dare I say, you know, numbers from 1925, wow. 1921. 1921, we were 2,600, and now we're down to 32, all the way from a high of 10,700. In 100 years? In 100 years. So, and I mean, once again, that speaks volumes to, you know, the resiliency of our Sentry Farm and Ranch Award recipients because there was a lot of homesteaders that came out and couldn't make it. So, very interesting. So, and then continuing on the, uh, uh, the evolution of the governance. Yeah, in 1944, uh, the MD of Killam was formed because the province implemented the Municipal District Act. And it was the MD of Killam. So we took all five of those municipalities and turned them into the MD of Killam. And a short three months later, in 1944, the MD of Killam was renamed the MD of Flagstaff. Interesting. Yeah, yeah and I, I've never been able to find the history why. Huh. 
So we were known as the MD of Killam for a short three months. And then in 1968, the MD of Flagstaff became a county due to the merger of the MD of Flagstaff and the Killam School District. Now, this is a little bit of municipal government 101 because a lot of people are saying, well, a rural municipality is a rural municipality. What's the difference between a county? What's the difference between an MD? Well, at that time, if, if you were not assuming the governance of the schools, the governance administration of the schools, you would be an MD. But if you were a county, you would then assume governance of the schools. So we were a county from 1968 until 1995. And then that's when the County Act was repealed by the province. So in essence, we should have reverted back to an MD, but you were still allowed to keep the county name. So instead of being the County of Flagstaff, we just changed the name to Flagstaff County. And we splitted municipal and school governments. So we have no, no involvement with the school anymore. And then you may ask, well, what about special areas? And then there was improvement districts. Uh, special areas, that's in southeast central Alberta. We have special areas two, three, and four. And they were considerably impacted during the 30s. And they had a lot of people leave the land back then, you know, through the drought, through the depression. And there was nobody there left on the land, nobody there to pay taxes. So the provincial government stepped in and they still do the administration of municipal services down there. So that's why you have special areas. Hmm. It's all interesting. Uh, Cause uh, yeah, I'm not from around these parts. So um, I'm finding this uh, very interesting history lesson today. Brent, are there any other areas or any other uh, historical tidbits that you'd like to touch on? Well, one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is just on the edge of Sedgwick here, we, we had an experimental farm or a research farm. And the provincial government had about five of them in the province. And it was established in 1911. And the purpose of this farm was just to carry on a mixed farming as a commercial enterprise for the province and just maintain research and demonstration data. And at that time, the first silo in Alberta was located here in Sedgwick, so that was 1911. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is some of the CPR farms that we have in Flagstaff County. And there's, we still have, I think, three or four homes still standing, and I know one is still being resided in. And at that time, the CPR set up about 24 different colonies of 762 ready-made farms across Western Canada. And if you couldn't afford to buy the farm, then the CPR loaned you the money. And if it was a bad crop year, the payments were deferred. And I guess the CPR lost about $14 million on the venture, but it did help settle the prairies. So that's interesting. And I know what, you know, we're all proud of some of the other heritage projects that we've done here at Flagstaff County. We, we've done a heritage inventory, so we've done... Uh, a tremendous amount of work trying to inventory all the heritage resources that we have here in Flagstaff County. And as a result of that initiative, we, we did the barn project. So uh, we had a summer student with us for three years, and she was able to put together 
two books for us, Heritage Barns of Flagstaff, Volume 1 and 2. And, you know, we, we have a lot of our history of the Flagstaff region contained within those two books. And it, it's, it's, it's good stuff. And you know what? It, it's, it's great to be proud of our heritage. And you, you can tell that everybody here appreciates it. We, we have the most Century Farm and Ranch Awards in the province, and that's something to be really proud of. Yeah, we do have a, quite a history to be proud of, for yeah. sure. So, Brent, uh, one more question before we uh, wind things up today. I've always been interested in the Iron Creek meteorite, that fiery meteorite that streaked through the sky so many years ago and is said to have landed in the Flagstaff region. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know what? You could probably do an entire podcast on that, and I think it would be really good to touch on that. And you know, some of the other indigenous cultural sites and events that occurred within our region because we do have a very rich heritage here. But speaking briefly on the Manitou Stone, that's what it's known as, uh, it is currently being housed in the Royal Alberta Museum. The original location where it fell was a geographic location known as Straw Stack Hill, which is north and just east of Lougheed. And, um, you know, yeah, very significant, very significant. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, we can, we can touch on and, and delve into more deeply in another episode. Yeah, for sure. Let's do this again because uh, Flagstaff has too much history for, for one episode of a podcast. Definitely. And thanks so much, Carrie. And congratulations to you. I really appreciate all the work that you've done to get our podcasts up and running, doing an excellent job getting this information out to the public. Yeah, thanks. It's just a, it's a, it's another tool for, for communicating to Flagstaff residents. And, you know, myself, I'm a podcast listener. So I was, you know, thrilled to, to be able to help get the Flagstaff County podcast going. So Brent, uh, this has been uh, uh, very enjoyable. Thank you for doing this and uh, let's do it again real soon. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you.